Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. So we are right now in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. We are at the, at the midway point. And this is significant for us. Uh, because the first half of the gospel has all been pointing towards this climax here, where with Peter's confession of, of Jesus as the Christ. In fact, this is, this is the point that the entire you know, book of Mark has been building toward. And this is the place where Peter says, you are the Christ, or, or as Matthew records, you are the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the place where the, where the story finally, after all of these events, and, and finally after all these miracles have taken place, that the first human, right, over a year later, begin to actually see and to declare who Jesus is. He is the Christ. And, and the word in, in, in Greek is, is uh, Christos, which is from the Hebrew word that we get the word Messiah, you see, the book of Mark opens up boldly with the statement that Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark then sets out to prove that statement through his fast-paced, action-packed uh, gospel narrative. And right from the very beginning, we see in chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism that God the Father himself declares this truth. Right? He says, you are my beloved Son. Shortly after that, in chapter 1, even the demons declare who Christ is. He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Right? You're, the, you're the anointed one. You're the one who's coming into the world. And, and from that point on, Jesus proclaims the gospel, and he performs incredible mind-blowing miracles and, and acts of sovereign power right? that, number one, prove that, that the gospel is true, and number two, prove that he in, indeed is exactly what Mark is saying. He is the son of the living God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And finally now, eight chapters in, Peter finally declares it. He finally declares the truth about who Christ is. It has been over a year since the disciples began following Christ, and finally their eyes are open sufficiently to this truth of who Christ is. This right here is another important high point in this story. And, and this event sets up really the second half of, of the gospel because now the disciples are going to discover and they're going to wrestle with what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. He's going to challenge their, their, their assumptions and what they think that they understand about that. And they're also going to discover and wrestle with what it means for them to follow him. Right? To be his disciples, because they think it's going to be one way, but really it's going to be something else. And throughout the rest of the gospel, we're going to see how God will progressively continue to open their eyes as these men will, will begin to slowly, fully, truly understand who Christ is and what he come to earth to do. And, and this right here is really one of my favorite stories in the Bible, especially when you read all three the gospels that, that talk about this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason why um, is, is not only is this a turning point in the story, right, but this is really one of the most important um, stories in the New Testament from a theological perspective, from, from an understanding God perspective. Because from this text, there is a great deal to learn about the nature of God's revelation and how God is progressively opening people's eyes, their spiritual eyes, to as he sanctifies them so they can see the truth, right? It's, as we see how this story then, it connects actually with what we talked about last week. As Jesus healed the blind man in two stages, you know, demonstrating that he is the one who progressively opens our eyes. This text is also has a lot to say about the church itself and, and its mission. Because Jesus in Matthew's gospel is going to say that he's going to build his church on this truth of Peter's confession. And he says, the gates of hell will not be able to stand or prevail against the church. Which, by the way, 
tells us a lot about who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. And I preached the message on that for Vision Sunday 2018. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that because it gives us a real clear, you know, clear sense of what, what the church is called to do and what we individuals are called to do. This text is also important because it's a scripture that throughout history has been used to, to argue differing perspectives for how the church is to be organized or the church government. Like there are some like the Roman Catholics or the, or the Anglican church or the Episcopalians who see this text as, as a reason for, for Jesus building his church on Peter himself. Right? And that means for them that the church at large is to be a connected hierarchy that has a centralized leadership. You know, that Peter and the apostles and then their successors are the ones who are the head of the church. While Protestants, particularly Baptists and Congregationalists, understand the text differently, citing that Jesus is building his church on the truth of Peter's confession that Christ is the Messiah. And then as such, he alone, Jesus alone is our leader, and he alone is the head of the church. There's no need for a centralized leadership outside of the church. And so there's a lot that you could talk about with this text, and I think that you could, this would make a great topical sermon. There's a lot of different ways to look at this. But for our time this morning, um, I want to show you how this text addresses really one of the most troubling and pervasive trends in Christianity today. You see, there is this movement, this trend that disguises itself as Christian unity that really is about undermining the foundational truths of the Christian faith. It's, it's this trend that is at best expressed with the popular slogan, no creed but Christ. See, this is a slogan and an attitude of a growing number of people who profess to be Christians in the United States. They say, no creed but Christ, no doctrine but Jesus. And what this simply means is, I don't want to know anything else. I don't want to hear anything else except Jesus, which on the surface sounds really good and, and even spiritual. Right? I don't want any theology. I don't want any of that stuff. Just give me Jesus. That's the idea. I don't want any doctrinal teachings of the church. I don't want systematic theology. I don't want statements of faith. I don't want articles of faith. I don't want historic confessions of faith. I don't want... I don't want any historical creeds that were formulated in the earliest parts of the church to communicate the truth of the gospel. I don't want any of that stuff. People, people will say they don't want any of those things. Just give me Christ. Now, the reason why they say these things is, is because they see these other things as the cause of division in the church. Many people will say that's why the church is divided. It's because of doctrine and theology that people can't seem to agree on important doctrines, and so that's why there's so many denominations. So the solution there, we just need to get rid of creeds and confessions and denominations that divide us so we can just be unified as a church. The church's problem is that people are just too focused on theology and not unity is what they will say. They will also say that these things are shackles to religious liberty. That they will believe that, that, this, that, that the established church doctrines and clear statements of faith, they get in the way of their liberty to interpret the Bible as, as they personally see fit based on their experience and their feelings. They see that, that these things are man-made restrictions that confine their religious experience, and these things they, they believe stifle their religious organic relationship with, with Christ. They also see these things as an obstacle to inclusion. They believe that the reason why the church is not more inclusive and affirming of non-traditional lifestyles like the LGBT community is because the church, you know, is, is just stuck. Like in an age-old, you know, way of thinking, in an age gone by that holds on to its old creeds and historic understandings of what the Bible teaches about things like family and marriage and sin. And they see these things as the problem. And they believe that the solution then is no creed but Christ. So instead of doctrine and theology and church history and confessions of faith, they just simply want everyone to be able to read the Bible and for everyone to live by what they individually think the Bible is saying. And they'll say things like, I, I, all I need is the Holy Spirit to guide me, which again sounds really noble, right? Doesn't it? All I need is a Bible and the Holy Spirit. I don't need anything else. That, that sounds spiritual and, 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 and even mature maybe. Because as Christians, we do believe in the doctrine of private interpretation. 
We, we, we affirm that, that people should read their Bibles and seek with all their hearts to understand them, that everyone has a responsibility to wrestle with the text and to seek to fully understand the truth of God's word. We also believe in the priesthood of every believer. The Bible makes it clear that once a person puts their faith in Christ, they are a part of the priesthood, and as such, they can come boldly before the throne of grace on their own and seek God's mercy and his wisdom. You don't need an intermediary. And we believe that the Bible, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, right, God can speak to all believers. That's what the Bible tells us, that, that if we read the Word and we will ask God to speak to us through His Word, He absolutely will speak to us. But do those things that we believe really mean that that's all we need? The fact is, I affirm the Reformed slogan, Sola Scriptura. I believe that the Bible is the highest possible authority. It's our final authority. And all that we believe and all that we claim must be tested by it. I believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient for life and faith. I believe that firmly. But understand, the Bible doesn't say we don't need other things like doctrine and theology and confessions and creeds. Because think about this. What happens when someone in their personal interpretation and understanding the Bible, they come to the conclusion that the Bible is telling them that the gospel, what it means for them, is that God's going to prosper them. That the point of the gospel is to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. How do you then stand and say that they're wrong? Because they appeal to the same scriptures that you're appealing to. What makes your interpretation right and theirs wrong? How do you distinguish what the Bible is really communicating? Because there must be something Right? Some interpretive method, some theological understanding that demonstrates one point of view is, is incorrect and another one is correct. What happens when someone reads the Bible and they see justification for things like polygamy? Is their understanding wrong? How do you justify your position? I mean, now you're going to say that, well, the Bible says, and they're going to come and say the same thing. What happens when someone reads the Bible and they believe that the Holy Spirit's leading them to understand that Jesus is a perfect created being and not God himself? What happens when people, you know, like today, use the Bible to justify things like abortion and call it a good thing? Right? There are ministers who recently have said that doctors are doing the work of the Lord. Right? They, they go out and they, they pray for and bless abortion clinics in the name of Christ. They are pro, they're performing abortions. They're murdering children in the name of Jesus. And guess what? They do it all rationalizing their position from the same book that you are. You see, the problem when people say no creed but Christ... What they're really saying is, who Christ is, is really left open to my interpretations based on my feelings. And what the message of the Bible is, and what the message of Christ is, and what the Bible teaches is really about what I personally think that it means. Which then, again, is influenced ultimately by my emotions, my experience, my upbringing, and my personal understanding of the text. It is very subjective. That's why right, they're saying, when, you know, that's what they're saying when they, when, when, when they say, no creed but Christ, that's what they mean. The Bible means what I think it means. And there's no objective way for you to argue with me or say differently. And, and this right here, over the centuries, by the way, it's not a new problem. This right here, over the centuries, has given rise to several heresies, several false teachings that have popped up in the church that have threatened to undermine the Christian faith itself, like the Arian heresy, which basically is this idea that, that Christ is of a different essence than God the Father, by the way, which means that he's a created being and he's not fully God, which we know is to be a heresy. It's not the truth. And though this is a third century heresy, you know, something that was dealt with by the church long since, you know, I mean, 1,700 years ago, today's Jehovah's Witness movement is keeping that heresy alive. Or how about Pelagianism, the 4th century heresy, where the view of, 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 of Christ, right, 
or excuse me, the view of man is that he is born without original sin. That mankind, once he's born, he has the potential and the ability to be good enough for God to rescue him on his own. That's Pelagianism. It was a heresy that was confronted by the church. And, it's, and by the way, that Pelagianism still influences all kinds of religions, uh, even still today, even very subtly. Or how about Nestorianism, which is the 5th century view that Christ was two separate people. That you had Christ the man and Christ the God, right? And they kind of coexisted in the same space for a time, as opposed to what we believe who Christ is. That he, is, he was fully God, who took on a human nature and became fully man. And now and forever will remain the God-man. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these kind of teachings that have popped up throughout history that have not only been, been an issue for the church, but they have led people astray and they continue to do so. This is what happens when there is no creed but Christ. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but every creed that has ever been written or developed was written to, to do one thing, correct false teachings. That's the point Every creed, every confession of faith, every statement of faith that has ever been written throughout history was written to address obvious error. It's like our own statement of faith, the, the 2000 Baptist um, faith and message. It was born out of a crisis in the 1970s and 80s where many churches and many people in the Southern Baptist Convention were giving up on the doctrine of, of the inerrancy of Scripture because of postmodernism pushing back on, on how you can't really fully know something Right? There were a lot of churches that were tempted to give in the cultural push to give up on inerrancy. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, if you give up on inerrancy of the scriptures, you might as well just stop being a Christian today. Right? And, and just walk away like so many other Christians have, supposed Christians have, like Joshua Harris, because your faith, if you give up on inerrancy, is not a rock to build your life on. It's a lump of clay in your hand that you're just going to fashion to your own liking, and that will never sustain you. Fortunately, the majority of, of, of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention at the time fought against that, and, 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 and the Southern Baptist Convention affirmed inerrancy of the Bible, and the 2000 Baptist faith and message makes that very clear. It's one of the purposes they wrote this statement. In fact, Article 1, the very first subject they deal with is the Scriptures. And it reads, and I want you to listen to the wording here, the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure, a divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end and truth without any mixture or of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore uh, is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who himself is the focus of divine revelation. You see, this statement of faith was written to correct a false teaching. All creeds are a response to false teachings. So to say that we don't need any creed but Christ is to say that all the theological issues that have come up throughout history that can lead people away from the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ, those issues are irrelevant. Not to mention, the statement, no creed but Christ, is actually self-refuting. Because the statement, no creed but Christ, is itself, at the basic level, a creed. It's a statement of belief. It's to say, I believe, I don't need anything else but, but Christ. I don't need any other doctrine, but Christ is itself a doctrine. And so it's self-refuting. Now, why is this even important? It's important because there's a growing trend in the Western culture to take the Christian faith and, and the life-saving gospel and make it as inclusive and affirming and as, as non threatening and as palatable as possible for the culture, the movement in the name of unity and inclusivity distances itself from the historical biblical truth and moves towards cultural acceptance. And we see it all the time. For example, there is a megachurch in Bakersfield 
um, that I've been researching for quite some time. When I say megachurch, I mean megachurch. There's thousands of people that go to the one campus, and they got five campuses. So it's a megachurch by, by every definition. And the church seems to exist simply to make people feel better about themselves. And it's funny because I preached that message this morning, and then I was talking, we were talking about stuff like this, and Mark was like, yeah, I used to go to this church, and he named it, and he goes, and they used to preach a message about feeling good all the time and going. He went to the exact church that I was talking about. He just affirmed what I just said. They talk about how God loves people, which, which obviously is true, right? We believe that. We teach that, right? But they never talk about conviction. They never talk about sin. They never talk about hell or repentance. In fact, the only time I've ever heard them preach a hard message against anything, it was actually against Christians who hold to traditional biblical worldviews. I watched a sermon by the senior pastor and, and this sermon was so big for him that he actually had his assistant pastor, they preached this thing in, 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 in a tag team fashion, and, and they said in this, in this message you know, that, that Reformed theology, which by the way is the foundation of all the Protestant faith, right, was the, was the doctrine of demons. And, and, and as he talked about this, it wasn't like he was teaching on this, it was like he was shaking, he was so emotional about this topic. Never once has ever heard him talk about sin, but he's like foaming at the mouth when he's talking about Christian, traditional Christian faith. And so researching them, I wanted to figure out more you know, about what they believed. And, and I wanted to be fair right, and give them the benefit of the doubt. And so I searched high and low of their website. I, I searched high and low across the internet. And I could not find anything at all about their statement of faith. I, I couldn't find anything that said, here's our statement of faith. And so I just decided, I called them, and I talked to one of the pastors on staff, super nice guy, and I asked him, I said, I said, can I get a copy of your statement of faith? He goes, and he starts like kind of stuttering, like, like as if he didn't know what I was talking about, or he, he was like embarrassed to not know what I was talking about. And so he seemed perplexed, and he says, well, we have this document. I said, well, just email it to me. Right? And so he sent me and said, this is what we believe. And by the way, since then, they posted on their website, what we believe. And this is what he says. He says, we are a, a simple Bible-believing church. Okay, cool. He believes the Bible. Awesome. That desires to teach people how to have a vibrant and living relationship with God. Okay? I'm not sure what that means, but that's okay. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who is given to all who receive him into their lives as Lord and Savior. One of, our most, one of our foremost goals is to provide a comfortable atmosphere in which individual believers can grow in their knowledge of the Lord and meet other Christians with whom they can identify and have Christian fellowship. How's that a belief? But that's okay, I digress. We believe, okay, we believe that as the early church in the book of Acts reached out and touched their world with the love and the presence of God, we can do the same. And, and I have to stop at this point and I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? When I read the book of Acts, what I realize is, is the way that they reached out to the world around them caused other people and the governments to, to seek to kill them and to destroy the church. I really don't see that happening in Bakersfield. I don't think that they're doing things exactly the way the early church did them. But he goes on and says, our approach to spiritual life is more out-of-the-box style and less traditional and structured. In other words, we don't have any creeds but Christ. So what in the world does this mean? Well, the reality is, is this is a mission statement. This is not a statement of, of beliefs. But on their page, it said, this is what we believe. This is, but, but this really is, is a mission statement. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not against mission statements. We have a mission statement. Our mission statement is that we exist to create spiritually maturing Christ followers. That's our mission. We want to bring people in right relationship with Christ, and we want to teach them then how to mature and, and follow Him. Right? And that's our that, that's what we do. Right? And, and we do that by being a loving community of Christ followers, passionately pursuing Christ being deeply connected to one another, and then being completely committed to sharing the hope of Christ with our community and our world. That is our mission, but that's not a statement of faith. And neither is what they're talking about here. But and notice that there's not even a discussion of their view of the Bible here, or of God, or of man, or how, how the, nature, or the nature of Christ's work. 
Notice there's no discussion about the gospel and salvation at all. In fact, searching their website, the word gospel is never one time mentioned at all. But comfort and, you know, feeling at ease, that, that, that subject pops up over and over and over again on their website. It's like they're making a point to be ambiguous and not say anything at all that might offend someone or, or key them in onto what they really believe. And when you listen to their sermons, you hear the same thing. The messages are all the same. I mean, I don't care what, when you pull the message out, here's the gist of the message. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you to be happy. He wants you to have a good life. He isn't really calling you to change. You can be like you are. You just need to know that Jesus loves you and that God is love and that we're here for you. And don't forget to put something in the plate. That's really the gist of every single message. And, and Mark affirmed that. that was the, he was there in the beginning of the, of the church, and that's, he, you know, that was what he, what he heard. And, and, and if you would like to listen to some of the messages, I'll give you the links so you can confirm what I'm saying. The problem is this church has really bought into the cultural lies. They, 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 they believe we just don't need doctrine. We don't need a clear statement of faith so that people right, know where we stand on the issues. We're just going to talk about the love of Christ and we're just going to, to help people feel better all the while a large portion of their membership thinks that they are saved but still really are under the wrath and the condemnation of God. And the thing is, is there's thousands and thousands and thousands of churches like that across the United States. And they come in all flavors, non-denominational, charismatic, non-charismatic, even Baptist churches. In the name of unity, in the name of liberty, in the name of inclusivity, many people in churches reject historic doctrines and theology and confessions of faith and creeds. But the foundational problem with this issue here is, as we're going to see in this text in a moment, is the church was built on a creed. It was built on a confession of faith. It was built on a clear theology, a very concise doctrinal truth. The church was built on a statement of faith. So turn with me real quick to Mark chapter 8. And we'll go through this really fast. Verse 27. And it reads, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus, he asked a really pointed question, by the way. Who do people say that I am? And what you need to realize in context that, that for rabbis to ask questions would be unusual because rabbis typically didn't ask questions. They gave answers. It was for the disciples to be inquisitive and to ask the questions and then the rabbi would then give them the answers. So the fact that Jesus is asking a question here is important. right? And it's important because he's asking a question to make an important point. There's a truth that he's trying to reveal. And so he asked the question, Who do people say that I am? And they responded, and they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and, and others, right, one of the prophets. And, and this right here, I mean, you can read that and go right past it, but there's an important detail to pay attention to here. Because I want you to notice the answers, the, the, the way the answers are. Every person that's mentioned on this list, every person is someone who historically was held in high regard. John the Baptist was held in high regard. Even by Herod, right? Even by Herod, he would spend time listening to him. He had he held him in high, high regard. And Elijah, I mean, if you remember the story, what happened to Elijah? He was taken up by a chariot of fire. I mean, you can't get more like 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 Christian famous than that, I think, right? Like you didn't even die. Like God picked you up on a chariot of fire. Elijah was well respected, and, and, and the prophets, all of them were well respected. People looked up to them, which means Jesus, then in their eyes, was by default highly respected. Right? But not only that, they also believed that Jesus must have been from God. And that for him to be there was an act of a supernatural miracle because John the Baptist, he was beheaded. And for him to be back, that's, that's a pretty big miracle, right? right? Or Elijah, I mean, he was taken up by the chariot of fire. How did he come back? Was it a chariot of fire? Right? What about the prophets of old that would require a supernatural act of God? And so what you need to see here is that people had a high view of Jesus. They revered him, they respected him, and they believed he was from God and he was there to accomplish something. So it wasn't like that they were saying, oh, he's just some guy from Galilee. He's some nut job 
from Nazareth. He's, he's just a carpenter's son. It's not what they were saying. They knew that he was special. They knew he was important. And they had a very high view of Christ. And Jesus wanted to draw the disciples' attention to this fact in order to set the next question up. And the next question is, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Now we know who, what everybody else is saying, right? right? Now we know that they have a high view of who I am. What about you? What do you think? What do you feel? What do you, you, my disciples, who do you think that I am? And then Peter answers the question. In a moment of incredible biblical clarity, he says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. In other words, you're the one that we've been waiting on. You're the one that we've been hearing about since we were little kids. In fact, Matthew, in his gospel, he, Simon Peter replied, you are, are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There was an incredible clarity into who Christ is. You're not just some highly respected person. You're not just one of the prophets. Right? You're not some person that was just sent by God. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. They don't get any more special than that. And, 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 and then notice then Jesus' reaction to that in Matthew's gospel. Because this is going to help us to understand why this is important. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, why does he say blessed? Because the Greek word blessed there means extremely happy or extremely fortunate. But even more specifically, it actually means enviable. Right? It means that you're in an enviable position that people, right? he's saying to Peter, people have a right to envy you. Well, why would he say that? Well, well Jesus answers says, for or because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter, you're blessed. <laughs> and people should envy you. And the reason why they should envy you is because you know something that they don't know. You see something that they cannot see. And the reason why you know it and they don't is because God the Father has revealed it to you. You didn't come up with this on your own, Peter. Right? Your intellect didn't lead you to this conclusion. You know what you know about me because my Father in heaven opened your eyes to the truth. You know this because God, the Father himself, showed it to you. Your flesh and your blood, intellect, your mind, didn't reveal this to you. You didn't come to this conclusion through the laws of deduction. All the flesh and blood can do is cause people to have a high view of me. But it's not going to cause them to see who I really am. God must open your eyes to that truth, and he did for you. And that is why you are blessed. And because of that, you were able to confess who I am. And then notice what he says next. He goes, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Or in other words... I tell you, you are Petros, which means pebble. And on this rock, Petra, or giant rock, like the rock of Gibraltar, I will build my church. My church. Well, then what is this rock that Jesus is going to build his church on? He is building his church on Peter's confession of who Jesus is. Peter's statement of faith of who Christ is. Peter's creed about Christ. Brothers and sisters, the church was built on a creed. The church was built on a foundation of a theological statement. Jesus is building his church on a clear doctrinal truth about who he is in his nature and his attributes. And it's something that must be believed. The church is built on a creed. Right? And with that in mind, think about what, what Paul then says to Timothy Right? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Notice the connection. A pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is a pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is God's instrument that he is using in the world to display, defend, and declare the truth of God's word. It is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And what is that built on? It is built on Peter's statement about Christ. A statement that was supernaturally revealed to him by God and that Peter fully believed. 
The church is built on a creed. By the way, the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which literally means, I believe. The church is built on a theological understanding of who Christ is, and that includes his nature as God and man, his power and his sovereignty, his mission, his virgin birth, his ultimate death on the cross, the resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his intercessory work where he sits right now at the right hand of the Father, and the fact that one day he will come back in victory and set all things right and judge all things. The church is built on that. And to say no creed but Christ is to fail to have a creed about Christ, which then ultimately undermines the foundation of the church itself. There's something else we need to pay attention to, though. Notice that Jesus asks about what others think, and then he turns and asks about what the disciples think. And this right here sets up several important parallels that we need to pay attention to. The others are outside of the kingdom. The disciples are on the inside. The others can only see with their flesh and blood. The disciples have had their spiritual eyes opened supernaturally by God himself. The others have a certain confession of Christ. The disciples have a different confession of Christ. You see, what we need to realize and come to terms with is the dividing line between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of, of the world is a creed. Because I want you to think about this. I want you to really hear me. Those outside of the kingdom, they might have a high view of Christ. And they may think that he was sent by God. And they may believe something special about him. They may even love him. right? But unless they confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God... Right? which means God in the flesh. If they don't believe those things and can't confess those things, they're not in the kingdom. It's as simple as that. They're outside of the kingdom, separated from God. Entrance into the kingdom requires belief and confession, which is exactly what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10. What, is, what does he say? If you will confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and understand, people get all twisted up here and, and don't really like, under, like embrace the full meaning of that. Lord, Yahweh, Lord, God, you know, the King, the reigning King, the sovereign, the one you be, are submitted to. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one can, confesses and is saved. The dividing line is a confession. The dividing line is a creed. What you believe and confess about Christ is the difference between being in the kingdom of heaven and being in the kingdom of this world. And over the centuries then, false teachings have popped up over and over in order to blur this dividing line and create gray areas that undermine the truth. And that is why the church has responded historically by writing creeds in confession, they are trying to clarify that line. That is why the very first creed we will ever experience is actually recorded by Paul in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Or in other words, I have given to you and I'm, I've taught you what, what has been taught to me. Right? And what was taught to him and that he's now teaching? This. It's a creed. That for Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Now, this creed that Paul is quoting actually can be dated even by skeptical scholars who do not believe in Christ within three, three to five years of the resurrection. Right? This creed was, was created within three to five years of Christ's death and resurrection. This is one of the very first creeds after Christ ascended into heaven. And Paul is teaching it, and, and it was obviously written to make clear the essential truths of the gospel because false teachers were already then disputing the details of the gospel from the very beginning. 
And so the church wrote creeds to combat these false teachings. And this process continued throughout history. That's why we have the Apostles' Creed. You're probably familiar with it, even though you don't maybe know what it is. It was developed to clarify the dividing lines once again. A modern version of this creed reads this way. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. You've probably heard that before. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, which means literally the universal church, not the Roman Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints, Lord's table. I believe in the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and everlasting life. Amen. And if this sounds familiar, it's because we sing a song that really covers a lot of this. I believe in God. Right? We, we cover almost all these details in our song. This creed is a summary of the gospel and what a person needs to believe on the foundational level. And we can say with confidence, if you deny any of these truths, right, then you demonstrate you do not understand the gospel right, or the word of God, and, and there's a high likelihood that you're not in the kingdom of God. This creed was written right, because there were people who look and took the same Bible as everyone else, and we're reading it and distorting the truth and leading people away. This creed became a measuring stick by which you can determine if a person believes the gospel or not. That is why we have creeds. The dividing line between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of, of, of the world is a creed. Now, after the Apostles' Creed came the Athanasian and the Nicene creeds, both of these creeds were written to clarify and understand the, you know, what, what we mean by the triune God. And those are very long, so I won't read them to you. I encourage you to read them on your own. But suffice it to say, they deal with the Trinity, right? Because, because God is triune in nature, right? And if anybody who says that they're a Christian but does not, but, but denies the Trinity, then we can say, then you're more than likely not in the kingdom because you don't even know who God is because God has revealed himself to be one in essence and three in persons. And we know from scriptures that the Father is not the Son and that the Son is not the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, but we know that all three of them are God. And to deny that would be to deny the foundation of our faith. And so this idea of no creeds but Christ is just simply a false teaching masquerading around as a noble, feel-good idea. It just simply opens the door for errors that can create confusion at best, and at worst it can create an open door for false doctrines that can lead people to destruction. Creeds and confessions really are actually essential to the life and the health of a church. Now understand, hear me on this. The Bible is our final authority, and all of our traditions and it is, it's, the, it's the final authority over all of our creeds and confessions and statements of faith. And every one of those things need to be evaluated and tested in light of the Bible. And all those things must be in submission to the Bible. But creeds and confessions and statements of faith can help us, number one, by helping us to examine our own hearts to see if we are of the faith. Number two, it helps us to test and see if others are of the faith and if we can have fellowship with them in the same body of Christ. And number three, super important, it's a measuring stick by which you determine the qualifications for the leaders of the church. Because leaders of the church must meet biblical qualifications. They must meet foundational doctrinal and theological standards. And one of the greatest problems that is facing the church at large today is many churches don't have a clear understanding of the qualifications of leaders. And because of that, there are many unqualified people leading other people into grievous error. There was a pastor who, was, um, who, who disqualified himself by becoming uh, adulterous in a big, big, big church, Billy Graham's grandson. And... And so the, 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 the church said, you cannot be the pastor anymore. And the organization around him said, you can't be a pastor. You cannot be a pastor anymore. And what does he do? He goes and he starts his own church around a bunch of people who say, you're qualified. Leading his congregation to grievous error. 
Now, when I became the pastor here, we didn't have a formal creed or a confession or a statement of faith. Now, some will refer to the church covenant that once existed here, but when I got here, that thing didn't exist. Like, there was no, there was no sign of it anywhere. There was no documentation. It wasn't in the church records. I mean, nothing like that existed when I got here. And so, and so with that, there was not really a formalized, like, statement of faith. And so when I first... One well, of the first things I did as a pastor was to in- introduce to the church the, the 2000 Baptist faith and message. And then we, as a church, unanimously adopted this as our statement of faith. Now, we are not affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, but the reason why we, we adopted this statement is because writing your own statements is crazy because there's a lot of things to consider and could take years to do. Number two, this is a very conservative statement of faith. It has a high view of scripture, has a high view of God, and it really has a strong position on important things like marriage and family, right? But it doesn't muddy the water with non-essential things like, you know, you know, what's your flavor of end times eschatology kind of things. But it's a really good test of biblical orthodoxy, which means if you believe our statement of faith and agree to it, we can be pretty confident as much as we can as humans that you are in the kingdom. Obviously, we're not God. We can't judge your heart. But if you affirm these things, we can be pretty confident of that. Now, if you read the statement of faith and you don't agree with it, and there's a minor point that, that, that you're like, I really don't like that, you can still visit us, and you can still attend, and you can still hang out with us, right? But you absolutely must believe and agree with the statement of faith to be a member here. Why? Because we are responsible for the members of this church theologically to make sure that they you know, are of the faith. And especially if you're in leadership, you must believe that. This is a document that we use as a church to identify the dividing line. And, and, and we use it to help people to grow in their understanding of God. And the reason is, is because we want people to know, you know where we stand and what we teach. And so that, that people can know and, and judge, are we a truly biblical church or not? They can examine us and see if what's being taught is biblical and orthodox. In fact, your responsibility as a congregation is to be like the Bereans and examine everything I teach you in light of the Word of God, making sure that I'm not leading you guys in the wrong direction. This is why the statement of faith is so important. It's, it guides our framework to help us to see and examine if what is being taught is within the bounds of the truth. Now, as much as I love this statement of faith, I have been introducing to our church leadership a historic Baptist Confession of Faith, which is the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It was written before 1689, but really kind of ratified in in 1689 when after England stopped killing Baptists, they could actually publicly sign it, right? And and the reason for, for this is twofold. Number one, this was written at a time around the Reformation and is much more detailed on several important issues than the Baptist faith and message. It's theologically richer, it goes into much more detail, and it gives guidance on several important issues. For example, our statement of faith here has a strong one-paragraph discussion about the Scriptures. The 1689 has ten paragraphs on the same subject. So it's much more detailed, and I think it's important that the leaders of this church really grow in their doctrinal and theological understanding. Right? I, think it's, I think it's good for their roots to grow deeper. And I'm going to begin teaching the leaders of this church you know, uh, through this confession of faith in order to strengthen our church through them. Secondly, the statement of faith was written in the late 1600s, around the time of the Reformation, and it historically connects us then to the earliest Baptists, those who paid for, for, for our faith that we're holding on to today with their blood. Right? Those who loved the Lord and, and, and His Word and glorified Him to the best of their abilities. And I think it gives us a heritage to stand on as we seek to glorify and honor God in our own lives. And I think that it'll be beneficial for our church generations to come as we know and understand these things. Now, if you'd like a copy of the Baptist Faith and Message, there's one on the back table. You can pick it up. We've got plenty of those. If you'd like one of these 1689s, come and see me. I've got a few left. Um, and then if I run out, then I'll write your name down and I'll order some more. But ultimately, what's the point? Why is this important to us here on Sunday morning as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark? I mean, why is this important to talk about when there's so many people hurting and grieving this morning? 
Well, it's important because this is where we're going as a church. God did not save you simply so you can sit there and, and spend the rest of your life simply being happy in the knowledge of your salvation. God didn't save you so you can come here on Sunday morning and just sit in a chair and, and have your, your heart touched and then walk out of here and live the rest of your life like nothing happened. God saved you to grow you and to transform you. For each and every one of you, God has a plan and a purpose for you. It is God's desire that each and every one of you would grow. It is his God that you become his disciple and that you pick up your cross daily and follow him wherever he leads you. Even to the darkest of places. And my job as a pastor then is to equip you for that. My job is to train you up for that. You're called to go out into the world and make disciples and help them to get plugged into the church and then teach them how to obey the commandments of Christ. And my job is to prepare you for that. And I believe that these creeds and confessions and statements of faith are valuable tools to help you grow in that. They can give us a foundation to stand on and then a track for us to run on. And so we can so that we can live our lives to the glory of God, no matter how dark and difficult the world may be. As the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll leave you with this, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let that sink in. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider then how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, let us encourage one another and stir each other up to love and good works so that we can fulfill the mission that Christ is calling every single one of us to. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.